Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Adria Breyer, a member of the club's Health and Medicine member-led forum. My specialty is international consulting and conquering cancer with integrative approaches. Everybody has heard of somebody, if not themselves, who had cancer, and it's a terrifying diagnosis. At least there's some control, though, that somebody feels. They can gather information, they can go to the doctors, they can get treatments. How many of us haven't gone into a room and thought, why did I enter this room? Or put something down and five minutes later we can't remember where it is, and the question then comes into our minds, oh my God, am I getting Alzheimer's? Right? Is there anybody here who didn't think that? Because I can't even imagine. Thank goodness for Dr. Bredesen. He's an internationally recognized expert in the mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases. And you're all here because you know his credentials and you know the title of the book. So I am not going to read his extensive background because that would take about 20 minutes. Rather, I'm going to read you some of the testimonials of his peers and the peer support, they really know how to evaluate. I will tell you before I go there, though, that his book has been translated into 25 languages. Neurologist and New York Times bestselling author of The Grain Brain, Dr. David Perlmutter, has said about Dr. Bredesen, In my opinion, he's deserving of the Nobel Prize. Dr. Bredesen has leveraged a paradigm that challenges the standard approach of modern Western medicine, and that takes courage. To walk outside of the box in the medical establishment takes courage. You risk the scorn of your peers. You might even be risking your medical license. This personalized approach recognizes the fundamental logic in targeting multiple issues to bring about improvement in Alzheimer's disease. He has shown us that this disease, now affecting over 40 million people around the globe and costing over a trillion dollars annually, is not a death sentence. Pinning our hopes on pharmaceutical research to develop a miraculous wonder drug has left both physicians and patients empty-handed. We need an alternative. We know how to get to cause. Dr. Perlmutter is going to show us how to get to cause. He's also going to address a number of tests that you've probably never heard of and many of your doctors have probably never heard of. I was fortunate last year to hear Dr. Bredesen on a panel, and he was talking about these tests I'd never heard of. I thought, my goodness, and these are listed in the book, Ways to Detect in Advance, and he will explain a lot of that. Dr. Mark Hyman, who many of you have also probably heard of, The End of Alzheimer's for the First Time, the book, synthesizes the latest science into a practical plan that can reverse Alzheimer's and dramatically improve brain health and function If you have a brain, read this book. So I don't know the distinction between Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. We're going to find that out. And one more quote. This book represents a major turning point in our approach to Alzheimer's disease. From viewing it as a mysterious, incurable affliction, which many of us have believed it is and seen the impact of it, to understanding it as a multifactorial condition that can be prevented and even reversed through many different pathways that Dr. Bredesen will again address, like nutrition, lifestyle, and shading back to Dr. Bruce Lipton and epigenetics. For the first time ever, patients and families affected by Alzheimer's, as well as those at high risk, have a reason to be hopeful. It is extraordinarily my pleasure to introduce you, Dr. Bredesen, and thank you so much for being here. 
Thanks very much, Adria. Thank you to the Commonwealth Club. It's a real honor to be here. Let me just ask, how many people here would like to avoid Alzheimer's disease? <laughs> so, yeah, so me too. Um, and so let me ask, how many people here know their HSCRP? One. Okay, great. Um, how many people here know their C4A? And anyone here know their APOE status? Okay, several people. Okay, yeah, good thing to know. And anyone know their oxygen saturation at night? couple people. Three. Okay. Fantastic. All right. Well, so these, as you can imagine, these things go together. These are intimately related. And my laboratory spent 30 years at UCSF, UCLA, and the Buck Institute studying one question. Can we understand the fundamental nature of the neurodegenerative process in enough detail that we can begin to fashion the first effective treatments. As you know, this has been the area of greatest biomedical therapeutic failure. As they say, everyone knows a cancer survivor, no one knows an Alzheimer's survivor. So let me show you some tonight. Uh, We have now over 3,000 people who are on the protocol that we designed. We actually applied first for a clinical trial based on what we saw in the laboratory uh, back in 2011, uh, which was going to be done in Australia. uh, And it was turned down because they said, well, this is a clinical trial that has multivariable instead of instead of one. You're just supposed to test one thing. We said, yeah, but that's not the way the disease works. It doesn't work with one thing. And I think that's something that we come back to again and again. So let's talk about that because I do think for the first time, we are in a position where we can begin to think about reducing the global burden of dementia. As you heard from Adria, this is a trillion-dollar global problem, and it's one that is growing, unfortunately. So as I say, you know, this is a story about more than Alzheimer's disease. It's about how neurons degenerate. It's about how you live your life, what you think about. And it's also about how our society changes. As Adria alluded to, we have run up against a lot of pushback. People have literally published articles about how terrible we are for saying this is what the science drives us to. It tells us something that isn't your typical let's get the next drug approach. And I'll show you why. I'll show you why the drugs have failed so far and why I think going forward drugs will be helpful, but on the backbone of a larger program. You're going after something that is not quite that simple that you just throw one little drug and everything changes. And I'll show you why. So it's really a a, a remarkable story. Let's start, though, with where we are today. So it's really a sad state of affairs. As every, anyone here knows who's gone to an Alzheimer's expert and said, can you do something for me? Here's what happens. First of all, as you know, patients often don't seek attention because they've been told there's nothing you can do. So there's no reason. So what happens? We wait as long as possible. People always told, well, look, it's probably not Alzheimer's. But, you know, if it is, there's nothing you can do anyway. So you might as well wait. In fact, one of the patients who has well-proven, pet-proven Alzheimer's, he's done beautifully. He's from Southern California. And um, he, his, his wife kept telling him, no, no, you're just, it's a senior moment. No, look, my PET scan, it's 100% Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's, no, senior moments. So we all tend to wait. How many people saw the Dr. Oz show yesterday? Maria Shriver and Dr. Oz talked about the fact that Dr. Oz's mother has, guess what, Alzheimer's. He's, as he pointed out, he completely missed it because it is a stealthy reaper. It creeps up on you, unfortunately. So you want to get
get in as early as possible. So the patients, they wait because they've been told there's nothing you can do. So finally then, they go in to see their primary care provider. And the primary care provider says, I don't have to send you to a neurologist. I can write the same prescription. There's not much to do anyway. I can write your prescription for Aricept and Amenda. Why do I need to do anything more than that? So finally, things get worse. They send you on. Now you've gone to the expert. And here's what the specialist says. Number one, I'm going to take away your driver's license so you can't drive again. Number two, you won't be able to get any long-term care insurance once I write in your chart that you have memory problems or Alzheimer's or any form of dementia. And number three, although I can't help you, would you mind coming back every six months for a spinal tap so I can renew my grant? That's how bad things are today, unfortunately. So we want to change that, right? We want to understand what would it take to change that. So let me show you why it is that what everyone has been doing for this disease actually makes no sense biologically. Here's why that is. A hundred years ago, most of us were dying from what? Simple illnesses, pneumococcal pneumonia, TB, diphtheria, things like that. And in fact, the great success of 20th century medicine was that we were able to take public health measures and, of course, antibiotics and treat these diseases. Now, here's why that worked. If you look at this chart, you see here ethanol on the left here. Let's see if we can. Let's see here. Okay, it doesn't show it there, but okay. So if you look at the lower left, that's that's alcohol. Next one is diabetes, mellitus, etc. If you get pneumococcal pneumonia, all of these things are important, whether in fact, if you drink alcohol, you're more likely to get pneumococcal pneumonia. If you have diabetes mellitus, you're more likely to get pneumococcal pneumonia. If your B cells are not working very well, for example, if you have multiple myeloma or something like that, you are more likely to develop pneumococcal pneumonia. And there are many other things. But the trick here is the pneumococcus itself, the organism, is so much more important than any one of those other things that we can get away with targeting that one organism and not worrying about if you're drinking or if you have diabetes and all that because it's so much more important than everything else. Unfortunately, that's not the way 21st century illnesses work. Now what's happened, because we've conquered those simple infectious illnesses, malaria, you know, on and on, what's happened is almost all of us are dying of a different kind of illness, complex chronic illnesses, neurodegenerative illnesses, cancers, cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, type 2 diabetes. All of these things are complex chronic illnesses. Now, here's the difference. Let's take a look at Alzheimer's disease. Whether you have insulin resistance or not is very important for Alzheimer's. Whether you have specific pathogens you've been exposed to, when you look in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's, what has been reported? Oral bacteria like P. gingivalis and F. nucleatum and T. denticola, they're all found in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. Lyme organisms, mold organisms, herpes simplex, as you know, HHV6, on and on. So there are a number of different types of organisms all found in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's. And as I'll show you, Alzheimer's is actually turns out to be a protective response that your brain makes 
to these different organisms. That amyloid is actually a very nice antimicrobial, the very thing we have vilified and tried to get rid of. What we really want to know is, why are you making it? That's what we want to know. So pathogens. Next is NF-kappa B here. So that's one of the important mediators of an inflammatory state. So anything that's causing ongoing inflammation, for example, an American diet, for example, leaky gut, for example, bad dentition, for example, sleep apnea, all of these things can contribute to that. Mercury is the next one. Guess what? Mercury, not a really common cause of Alzheimer's, but it's one of the contributors. And you can see here mycotoxins, various organic toxins, homocysteine, on and on and on and on and on. So we identified dozens of things that all contribute to what we call Alzheimer's disease. So therefore, you can see nothing is sticking way, way up above the others. So we can't simply target one thing and everything goes away. That is the fundamental difference between a simple illness and a complex chronic illness like Alzheimer's. So there's no perfect drug target here for Alzheimer's disease. And that's why what we've used is like using a checkers strategy in a chess match. It doesn't really make sense if you look at what's driving the process, which is what our research has been all about. Okay, so I call this Game of Thrones. I don't know how many Game of Thrones fans here, but we've really thrown away the opportunity to get a good treatment for this by trying time after time after time. And for example, in one decade, there were 244 clinical trials, 243 failed outright. And the one that succeeded had just a minuscule effect. So everybody knows there isn't a drug that makes a really big difference for Alzheimer's disease, unfortunately. Yet we have spent billions of dollars trying to develop exactly such a drug. So it really is time for a paradigm shift. We need to think about this differently. And here you are, right? We're all right near Silicon Valley, the world home of disruption. And yet, what is medicine? Medicine is generally about tradition and permission. We teach our, you know, we teach our students, but we do the same old thing, same old thing, same old thing. Understandably, because we are taught first do no harm. The problem is we haven't had anything that really works for this disease. So we do have to think outside the box. We do have to borrow a little from Silicon Valley and be a little more disruptive, looking at what's actually driving this. So let's talk about the research for a minute. So here's the current standard. You go into an expert and they say, we don't know the cause of Alzheimer's, as if there's a cause. And as I'll show you, there's not one cause. There are many contributors. We usually tell patients, imagine you have a roof with 36 holes in it. It's going to be really good if you take a drug. It's going to do really, be a really good patch for one hole. But what about the other 35? So we want to patch the multiple holes to give you the best opportunity for improvement. And indeed, that's what's led to people getting better, the first ones. So we call it one disease. And we say we're looking for a therapy, which is monotherapy, which is a single drug, which has been ineffective, as you know. The research findings suggest something completely different. One, first, there are many contributors, as I was showing you just a minute ago. Things like mercury, things like vitamin D. Having a low vitamin D is not good for your brain, nor for your immune system, nor for your cardiovascular system, bones, on and on and on. Okay, 
what we find when we look at these larger data sets and when we ask, what are, what's the status of these different pathogens? What's the status of the immune system? What's the status of various toxins and things? What we find is that there are different subtypes. We can now start to classify people and say, oh, you have more of an inflammatory type of Alzheimer's. You have more of an atrophic type. Oh, you have more of a toxic type of Alzheimer's. So we discovered and published a few years ago that there are six different subtypes, and we'll talk about those. And that means there are actually many different treatments, and they are personalized. It depends on what you, why you are responding. What are the insults you are responding to, or I am responding to, or whoever? And then we want to look at addressing those different ones. And typically we find between 10 and 25 different contributors for each person. And of course, we want to get in as early as possible. And the earlier, the better. We've seen dramatic results, especially in the earliest days. And we have seen some results in, in, at later stages, people with MOCA scores of zero, but they are much harder to get and they are less common. Whereas the people at the very beginning, they all get better, as I'll show you. So what this means then is if we wanted to develop the perfect Alzheimer's drug, and we spent a number of years in the lab trying to develop an Alzheimer's drug, and we actually have one that's, which in, that's in clinical trials, but it's not a cure for Alzheimer's. It's a drug and it does something. But here's what you'd have to do. If you wanted a perfect Alzheimer's drug, this is what it would have to do. And that's the scary part. So we need to address a number of these things that are all driving the process that we call Alzheimer's if we're going to get our best result. And just as people now have embraced the idea of precision medicine in oncology, we want to address the idea of, of precision medicine in dementia, in cognitive decline. Okay, so let me show you a couple of examples. So this woman is actually now 75. She came to see me in April of 2012. Uh, she works in Washington, D.C. for the government, and her mother died of Alzheimer's. She was developing very similar symptoms and actually went to her doctor who wrote down memory problems in the chart, and so she then found she could not get long-term care insurance, a very common problem. She was having trouble getting lost on the freeway, very typical story, and she decided to commit suicide. She said, I watched my mother for 17 years as she went, went into a nursing home and ultimately couldn't recognize me and finally died, so I'm going to commit suicide. She called her friend who happened to live in San Francisco and said, I want you to get on a plane, fly out here, come to the Buck Institute. And I got this call, and I said, look, I, I work in the lab. We, 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 I can fix a mouse, but you know, if, if, you know, if, if she's bigger than a mouse, we, it might not work. Uh, I hadn't seen patients in 20 years at that point. I said, you know, and then she said, well, look, you have to see this lady because she's going to commit suicide. So we spent two and a half hours going through exactly what I'm showing you today. And I said, look, you want to take this back to your doctor? Fine. Uh, and I thought I would never hear from her again. Three months later, I got a call Saturday morning at my home. And she said, I can't believe it. My memory's better than it's been in 20 years. She's back at work. And she's now 75, still working full time. The U.S. government sends her overseas. She's doing great. Uh, and actually, she's going to be part of an upcoming documentary that's being done by NHK in Japan um, on this protocol that I'll show you tonight. So she's she came in. Her mother, as I said, died with dementia, couldn't remember how to navigate on the freeway, couldn't remember what she'd read, couldn't prepare reports for her work. She couldn't remember even short numbers. She had a retinal scan, which was positive for amyloid, suggesting that she actually had Alzheimer's. She was treated with what we had done in the lab, and we called this RECODE, which is for reversal of cognitive decline. But it's simply asking... What is causing your problem? That's really all that we're doing. We're saying, let's not try to treat this blindly, which is what everyone's tried to do. Let's ask what's causing it. We look at 
large number of different things and say, okay, here are the things that are contributing to this change in your brain, which is Alzheimer's disease. And so she talks a little. She came back to see me after a year, and I said, do you mind if I film you? And she said, as long as you don't use my name. And so as you'll see here that she is... Um, you'll see here that, that she's pixelated because she's still working. She obviously doesn't want to, people to know that she's been treated for Alzheimer's, but she's doing great. So tell me a little bit about how things were a year ago. Well, a year ago, I was having a lot of difficulty. I was very frustrated because my memory was poor. Um, I had issues of being spatially disoriented, particularly when I was driving. I would get off the freeway at the wrong exit or not know where I was getting back on, on familiar routes. Um, I would reach in my house for a light switch. I'd reach on the wrong wall, even though I'd always had the light switch has always been on, on the right side. I'd start reaching to the left. Um, I'd call my animals uh, a different name, uh, my pets, and I was really worried about it. I was very stressed about it. Um, so it was a, it was a very stressful time. And how are things at work? I have a, a job that requires a lot of mental uh, analysis, a lot of thinking. I, you know, I do a lot of research. I have to collect data and design the study and then do the analysis and write a report, usually under pressure. And I was finding that I just couldn't complete an assignment. I couldn't think about the analysis. Um, it was just a jumble to me, and I would start procrastinating and putting it off. And the longer I put it off, the more stress I felt. So I was worried that I was not going to be able to continue with my career. And tell me a little bit about how things are now. Things are much improved now. Uh, my memory is much better. In fact, I would even go so far as to say I don't think that I have a problem uh, with memory now, uh, which is a great surprise to me from where I was a year ago. My, my thinking, uh, cognitive ability, ability to do work, ability to do reports, um, I am back into the stream of things, being productive and being able to do my analysis and writing, which is fantastic. And how's the driving? Driving, no problem. I drive at night, I drive in the daytime, um, I know where to get off, where to get on. Um, I'm uh, on, the, on the highway, so I'm, um, I feel like that's a problem. I'm not reaching for the wrong side of the room for the light switch, and I'm not calling my pets the wrong name, which I think they're probably grateful for. And how overall are you feeling? I feel great. I feel really, really good. I feel energetic. Uh, I feel more peaceful and calm about my life, but at the same time, very enthusiastic. I've even started writing my book. Fantastic. A couple of chapters. Okay. Thank you very much. So she actually has a chapter she wrote for the next book um, that I wrote, which is about the patients. It's about the first survivors of Alzheimer's, and she has a beautiful chapter there about her life. Interestingly, she four times went off the program and four times got worse, and it typically took seven to ten days. We were hoping initially, we thought, okay, Alzheimer's takes 20 years from the beginning of the pathophysiology until a diagnosis is typical. And so we thought, great, if we can make someone better, probably they'll stay better for 20 years. It hasn't turned out that way. When she stops, about seven to ten days later, she starts going downhill again. She goes back on and gets better again.
So here's another guy, very typical story. Uh, this guy actually, when he was 58, had a diagnosis, could not remember uh, his locker combination. This is a typical patient, APOE4 positive. So this is why I'd asked if people know, if you have a single copy of APOE, if you, let's say if you have zero copies, which is the most common, about three quarters of Americans have zero copies of APOE4. Um, their chance during their lifetime is about 9%. It's not zero, but it's not very high. If you have a single copy, you got from your mother or father, so a single copy, then your chance is about 30% during your lifetime. If you have two copies, uh, and that's 7 million Americans, so 75 million Americans, about a quarter of the population, has one copy. Most don't know it, of course, until they start having cognitive decline. And then about 7 million have two copies, and they are at way over 50% chance. So most likely they will develop Alzheimer's during their lifetime. So this is why we argue every Everybody should find out and get on prevention when you're young uh, or get on prevention anytime is actually a good idea. So this guy had a PET scan. He, this guy actually works uh, in the healthcare industry. And so he went straight away and said, you know, something's wrong here. Went and got a PET scan, which unfortunately showed that it was very typical for Alzheimer's disease. And he followed his own decline. He had neuropsych testing in 2003, actually here in San Francisco, 2007, 2013, and very nicely documented the decline. And as so many people do, he was going along like this and then really fell off the cliff in 2013, which is his, when his wife brought him to see me December of 2013. And he had a progressive loss. His California verbal learning test went from 84th percentile down to 3rd percentile, unable to remember his lock combination, faces, schedule, who he had lunch with, etc. And interestingly, he not only had trouble at work, but he also had difficulty. He had been able his whole adult life to look at a column of numbers very quickly and say, oh, yeah, that's about 430,000. He would meet with his accountants and go over this. And he lost that ability. He got it back. And by the way, one of the, one of the women we treated in New York City had lost her ability to read music, and now she reads music again and plays piano and, and beautifully. beautifully. So uh, improvement at six months, um, and interestingly, his wife called me up, and she said, you're missing the most important thing. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, yeah, he's better. But she said the most striking thing was that he was accelerating in his decline before he came in in December of, two, of 2013, and that completely stopped. And then after a few months, he started to get better. And it typically takes people three to six months. As I mentioned, the woman who, the first woman who called me, uh, we call patient zero, um, she called me after three months, and that's pretty pretty typical. It doesn't happen overnight. So this guy, you can see, we asked him, can you now go back? You've had a very good baselines with your cognitive assessment. Let's find out where you stand. And this is after he had been on for two years. This was late 2015. And of course, you can imagine, he didn't want to do it. He said, look, I'm back at work. I had been told to shut down everything and, and go into retirement. Um, I actually ended up uh, opening another office. I'm doing great. Uh, if, if the uh, neuropsychologist, who's never been very positive, who said, you know, you just don't get better from this problem, um, if he tells me I'm not really as much better as I think I am, that's going to kind of ruin things. So we finally convinced him, look, just go back, do the best you can, because it could help other people. And as you can see here, he went here, CVLT2, Part B, third to 84th. You can see here is auditory delayed memory, 13th to 79th, reverse digit span, 24th to 74th. So really striking improvements. And actually, my wife and I were driving up from UCLA when we got a call from the neuropsychologist who had seen him, who said, you've got to see these numbers. He said, I've never seen anything like this in my practice. And he's still, this guy is also now 75. Um, and as you can see, he started at the end of 2013. So he's coming up on six years. The most important thing about this is we're now getting at what caused 
causes the problem. Instead of trying to trick nature and get around something, we're saying, here's what's actually driving this degeneration. So therefore, when people get better, they stay better, which is not to say that everybody does get better. But when they do, they stay better. And we've seen that again and again and again. Here's a guy with senior moments. Again, a very typical story. Both parents had died with Alzheimer's disease. He was APOE4 positive as well. Amyloid pet, markedly positive. His FDG pet was typical for Alzheimer's. He had a reduced hippocampal volume, which is common with this disease and and not a good prognostic indicator. And he had neuropsych testing that showed he was already into MCI, which is a pre-Alzheimer's condition. HSCRP was 9.9, so it shouldn't be more than one. So this guy had ongoing systemic inflammation, which typically is not even checked when you go in to see an Alzheimer's doctor. His homocysteine was 15.1. It shouldn't be over 7. So again, abnormal. His vitamin D, low, 21. We like to see it much higher than that. And so I I said to this guy, this guy's actually a physician. I said, you know, you're giving yourself Alzheimer's disease. And he said, well, I I need to hear that so I can get do, do the right things. And he's done very, very well. His testosterone, also low. His thyroid, low. He responded beautifully. This guy actually came to see me at UCLA, and he said, and called and said, you know, if you guys ever come up with a drug that looks good, let me know. I said, well, actually, this is before we had published our first paper in 2014, and I said, well, look, um, you know, why don't you come in? We, we're actually doing something that might be helpful to you. So, of course, he was very skeptical. Everything I would say to him, well, you've got to check this, and you've got to check it. That's not a cure for Alzheimer's. That's not, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. So finally, after a little while, I said to the guy, look, give me six months. If I can't make you better in six months, go somewhere else. He said, there isn't any other place. So I said, okay, well, then, you know, give me a chance here. So after three months, he did very well. His wife called me up and said he's doing great. Uh, he went back to seeing his patients. I mean, he's still doing great, by the way. I just actually talked to him two days ago. Um, doing great. You can see here after 10 months of treatment here, His hippocampal volume had gone from 17th percentile to 75th percentile. I asked him, can you go back and get an an updated MRI with volumetrics? He said, you don't grow new brain. So I said, well, look, I know, but, you know, there are actually some recordings. There are some published papers already that show small increments in hippocampal volume with just exercise. So you've been doing a lot more than that. You've been doing a comprehensive program and you're doing great. Let's just see where you stand. So what happened was the neuroradiologist literally would not believe this. So he said, we, we must have made a mistake on this. So we went and got the films and actually took them to another place that read them independently and showed the same thing. So this this guy's doing doing very well. And you can see here, actually, his gray matter, again, uh, as as parsed by the uh, by the computer, increased by 23%. So just la- at the end of last year in October, we published a paper here showing 100 patients that all had documented improvement, where we had pre and post. And some of these people, they all had cognitive testing, quantitative cognitive testing, but some of them also had quantitative EEGs that showed improvement. Some of them had MRI volumetrics that showed improvement. Uh, Some of them had uh, evoked responses that showed improvement. So they were all documented. So let's look at the standard of care versus the 21st century. There is a, there really is a, literally a revolution in medicine. And interestingly, one of my friends who's a 
who is a major figure in, uh, in American education of medicine, said, you know, we'd like to teach this new kind of medicine, but we can't teach the new kind of medicine until all the practicing doctors accept it. And I said, yeah, but the, the practicing doctors won't accept it until you teach it. So, you know, how are we going to move forward when the doctors are, are doing what they were taught in medical school, but the medical school won't teach something new until the doctors accept it? It's, it's really a strange situation. So here's what we do, and I think everyone here is well aware of this. We're supposed to wait. We wait for our symptoms to appear. Do I have a headache? Do I have chest pain? What it is? I, you go to the doctor. Typically, the doctor takes about 10 minutes. They're limited by whatever system they're working for. You are a passive observer. You're coming in and telling, you know, you might tell them I did a Google search. But typically, as patients, we have been taught to be passive, right? We go and help me. I have a headache or help me. I have chest pain. The involvement of the patient is seen as interference. I don't know if anyone's seen that little mug that a lot of doctors have in their offices says, your Google search does not equal my medical degree. So, okay, yeah, we get it. But, you know, we're just trying to help. And, in fact, you know more about the way you feel than the doctor knows about the way you feel. So it really should be a much more interactive thing. You get a tiny data set. This is amazing. I went to a, a school that's a school for, for engineers down in Southern California. And, you know, there, if I took to one of my friends who's an engineer and I said, okay, I have a problem for you. We're going to take something that's unbelievably complex. This is a, called a human body. We've got even the, the genome, which is 3.3 billion base pairs. That's the simplest. That's just unidimensional. But now we're going to look at your, you know, proteum, all these things. This thing, something went wrong with it. And I want you to tell me what it is. I can give you a sodium and a potassium and a couple of things. I mean, the engineer would laugh you out of the room. There is a complexity gap between what's happening to us as physiological beings and the amount of data that we gather to determine what we should do about it. It makes absolutely no sense. So here we have these wonderful groups in Silicon Valley that are gathering these massive data sets to tell them where you shop. Why are we not doing this to tell them why you're dying of Alzheimer's? It makes no sense. It's like we're really good. Oh, yeah, we can tell you went to Macy's yesterday. Yeah, but help my brain. You know, no, that's no, we're just going to check your sodium and potassium there. So it really makes no sense. There's no algorithm or computation. We use tiny data sets. We then give a monotherapy that has almost no effect. You know, the simplest thing, if you go in and someone says you have hypertension, why do we not say, well, why did I get hypertension? They just say, I'll write you a prescription for an antihypertensive. Wait a minute, why did I get, why do I have hypertension? Let's figure that out and let's get rid of that thing that's giving me hypertension. Maybe it's my boss. Maybe it's my spouse. Uh, let's find out. But they don't do that. They just write you a prescription for an antihypertensive. Then we're unable to purchase long-term care insurance because it's been written in our chart. We end up in a nursing home. It's very expensive to end up in a nursing home. We destroy the family's finances, and we die destitute. That is, unfortunately, the current model. We've got to change that. We have got to change that to a 21st century model. So 21st century model is completely different. First of all, we want to reduce the global burden of dementia. So we want everyone, just like you'd get a colonoscopy. Everyone knows when you turn 50, what do you get? You get a colonoscopy, not a birthday present, a colonoscopy. And the first time I had one, actually, my wife and I went on, together as his and hers on, on Valentine's Day. And so we just thought, you know what? This is what we need to do to make sure we're both going to survive. We're both going to live. So, But nobody ever tells you, look, when you turn 45 or older, what should you get? 
a cognoscopy, right? You should get a cognoscopy, see where you stand. How am I thinking? And what are the various blood values that are telling me? Just like you want to know your cholesterol, you want to know your LDL particle number and things like that. You also want to know the things that are giving you risk or not for dementia, critical. So we want to have active prevention and earliest reversal possible. And we want to optimize those things. We want to have a central coordination for evaluation, for the program, for social networking, for insurance, and for neuroceuticals. And why do I say that? Because right now, it's really interesting if you ask, well, for example, why don't we have dementia insurance? Well, it's because nobody can figure out how to do it. Nobody thinks anything can be done about it. And they say, well, look, in our system of healthcare, we only pay for you for a few years. So it doesn't help us to keep you healthy for a long term because you're going to then, we're just paying for someone else's healthcare system, one of our competitors, and we're not going to do that. So it doesn't behoove anyone to keep us healthy, which is just bizarre. So we need to have this coordinated because it's good for us to stay healthy. So Interestingly, when I was over in Japan recently, and I was talking about dementia insurance, they said, oh, yeah, we have dementia insurance in Japan. I had no idea. So Japan actually has dementia insurance. I hope that in the U.S. we will have dementia insurance because then you, you have some reason to get in early, find out what's going on, and keep you from getting dementia. We need to use the very expert systems that we're using for flying planes and figuring out if you went to Macy's and figuring out what you like to do when you're on the computer, all those horrible things. And things like uh, Alexa, you know, telling uh, telling Jeff Bezos uh, what you said in your living room last night and all these things that we hear about that are happening because of these wonderfully complex systems we have in our homes. Why are we not using this for medicine? We want to have active insurance, as I mentioned, for dementia and then other chronic conditions as well. We want to have continued optimization. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. So one of the things we find when you use this programmatic sort of approach, you don't just give a prescription and go home. You continue to tweak things as you find new things. We've seen this repeatedly now. People who will get somewhat better and then kind of plateau, and then we find, oh, there's something else contributing as well. We address that. The plateau goes higher. They do better. And then we want to reduce the global burden of dementia. As I say, this is a trillion-dollar effect. And we want to combine the failure of the current system, the available and evolving programs, the increased data sets, and the programmatic approach with the aim of the first reversals of cognitive climb. So we want, to, we want to improve these to establish a better model. So I'll just spend a couple of minutes showing you. Here's what the data showed us over the years. So we spent, as I say, 30 years in the lab. What we found is that these complex chronic illnesses are imbalances in specific programs that we can look at, physiological programs, where you can literally pick apart the different pieces of it, and you can see that you're on the wrong side. Now, everybody knows about osteoporosis. You have osteoblasts that make the bone. You have osteoclasts that pick up the bone. They're those cells there on the right. And these things are essentially, when you're younger, they're doing a beautiful job, and you're, you're doing some of both. So you're continually, just like, you're, just like you would be fixing your house all 
the time. You're putting, maybe putting in a new room here. Maybe you're taking this down. Maybe you're adding here and there. Imagine now that on your house you had contractors, and you had one that did all the demolition. You had one that did all the construction. And imagine that for 20 years, the guys that did the demolition always did a little extra because they're your friends. And the guys that did the construction never did. They, they never showed up. Your house would be getting smaller and smaller, right? That's exactly what happens with osteoporosis. So I'll show you that's exactly what happens in Alzheimer's disease. Cancer, interestingly, same story. But in this case, you have cytoblastic signaling, a whole set of genes, oncogenes. You've got the tumor suppressor genes that actually are causing the cells to turn over. So when these things are chronically on the wrong balance, because typically you've had several somatic mutations, you were smoking, you were out in the sun, you got exposed to benzene, what? Whatever, various things, then, in fact, or you got exposed to glyphosate, unfortunately, as we're now knowing with lymphomas, then, in fact, you get this thing called cancer, which is, again, an imbalance. So Alzheimer's, same idea. There's a whole set of things that are involved in synaptoblastic activity. In other words, it's making and keeping those synapses that are critical for your memory and cognitive performance. On the other hand, there's a whole set of things that are literally pulling back. So you're saying, okay, we're going to reorganize. You're actively forgetting the seventh song that played on the radio on the way to work yesterday. We all are. You're keeping over your lifetime only the most important things, and you're getting rid of a lot of the stuff. You know, information, uh, conversations you might have heard 20 years ago that you don't care about. Those are long gone because you've kept the most important things. And someone asked me years ago, why would it be then? If your body is responding to this, why would it be losing memory first? That seems like such an important thing. But if you think about it for a minute, you think, okay, if you had your choice and I said to you, okay, tomorrow morning you can wake up and either you can forget how to drive or how to do your job or how to speak or how to understand, or you can forget the friends rerun from tonight. What would you choose? And that's exactly what your brain is doing. It is literally saying, look, I can do really well with the things. And in fact, people who have early Alzheimer's do really well. They play tennis. They drive cars. They do their jobs. They talk to people. They do everything, but they have trouble learning new things. That's the typical story. So, in fact, the ones who don't have the trouble with the learning of new things that have the organizational or executive dysfunction, they're the ones that get fired from their jobs first. The ones who have the memory problem tend to do better for a while. So now we can focus in on what's actually driving that balance between the making of the synapses and the reorganizing of the synapses. And interestingly, this is where what people have looked at, the amyloid that's in the brain of Alzheimer's patients, actually comes into play. So where does that amyloid come from? It comes from a parent molecule, which is the one running down the middle there, which is called APP, amyloid precursor protein. Makes sense. Interestingly, this thing is like a molecular switch. So you can see here, if, you, if things are good, then you cut it at one point there, which is called the alpha site, and you, therefore you get two pieces, SAPP alpha and CTF alpha. This is trophic, anti-Alzheimer's. So I describe this as imagine that you are the president of my brainistan. Okay, and you're in my brain of stand and you look around and you say, hey, are things good in my brain of stand? And you say, yeah, there's no problem with our currency. There's been 
There's been uh, there's been no pollution. We're in good shape. And we're like, okay, good. We're now going to grow. We're now going to make more connections in my brain and stand. We're going to build new buildings. That's exactly what your brain is doing. On the other hand, things are bad in my brain and stand. You have runaway inflation. You have pollution. You have uh, problems with uh, currency, etc. cetera. Uh, this is exactly what happens in your brain. When you have insulin resistance, pathogens, all these things. So therefore, your brain has to say, wait a minute, I can't grow. I cannot do this. I need to pull back. And so what it does then is the same molecule gets cut at three sites. And you can see here there are four peptides. And these are literally sending memos, two of them for outside the cell, two of them for inside the cell. And they're saying, shut down, shut down. We got to pull back. And so you are literally responding to insults to bad problems. And downstream from this is what we recognize as Alzheimer's. You have the tau tangles that we think about. You have the mitochondrial changes. You have the amyloid plaques. You have the neurite retraction. So this is part of your brain's response to a complex set of things that represent insults to you that say you're not in a position where you can continue to expand. So way back in 2006, we published on these mice. So we said, okay, if this, if we're right about this, let's take some mice and let's just genetically manipulate them so they'll actually be on the good side of that thing I just showed you. They'll still have a head full of amyloid, so they'll still have Mousheimer's, so what we call these. So this is a Mousheimer's. Now, this is the control guy, so this is the normal guy, and you'll see here. They learn how to swim to that little place to get out. And you can see here, you'll see how good he is at this. So he, very quick, he knows. He's learned for a couple days now. He goes right to it. Great. Now, the next guy, this guy's the Mousheimer's guy, and you can see it's really strikingly different. And this guy has a gene in him. He's a transgenic mouse, a gene from families with Alzheimer's. And actually, he's got two different mutations from two different families. And you can see, they, they really don't have good memories. It's really striking, actually. And they go around, and we don't let them drown. We take them out after 60 seconds. He goes around and around, and he gets close, but he never finds it. Okay, now this guy is identical to the last guy. He has just as much amyloid, so just as much Alzheimer's. But now we've tilted that balance, so he doesn't make so much of the other of the four. He makes more of the two good guys, and you can see here, how well he does. Even though he's got a head full of Alzheimer's, he goes straight there. And we published this back in 2006. So, and again, when we published this, everyone said, you're saying that amyloid isn't important. You're bad people. This is wrong. Okay. Um, well, it turns out amyloid is, is important, but it's important as part of the overall picture, not as the single thing by itself. Okay. So we can make a mouse better, but what about humans? So what we wanted to know is in a mouse, you just change this genetically. In a human, you can't do that. And in fact, in the human, the vast majority, 95% of Alzheimer's is not the familial type. It's the sporadic type. So there are all sorts of things that contribute to it. So we wanted to look, and this is an interactome. So it looks looks at APP, which is there you can see in the center, what are all the things that interact with it? And as you can see, there's all sorts of different stuff. So guess what? It turns out to be important, whether you slept well last night, whether you've got stress in your life, whether you have a high sugar diet, whether you have a leaky gut, whether you have low vitamin D, whether you have low estradiol, thyroid, pregnenolone, you just go on and on and on. These things all 
converge on that signaling molecule. It's literally integrating over these things. It is. It's like the president of my brainistan. So this is why we tell people, imagine you have a roof with 36 holes in it, and we want to patch all these holes. Well, the immediate thing that came up is, well, wait a minute. APOE4 is the common genetic risk factor. There are several dozen, actually, but it's the common one. As I mentioned, 75 million Americans. So nobody had known how it is. You start with APOE4, you end up with Alzheimer's, but what's in the middle? Why do you get that? And does it make sense with what we've been saying, that you're on the bad side of that balance? So we started this project almost a decade ago, and it's absolutely fascinating. So you probably know the you know, the World Center for Studying uh, APOE is right here in San Francisco at the Gladstone Institute. The original head of the Gladstone Institute, Dr. May Lee, is the one who discovered APOE years and years ago when he was at the NIH. So if you, if you look at this, it's a really interesting story. So I call this the chimp that killed the rhino. It's an amazing gene. You can think of this as the God gene because it does so many different things. Now, chimps had a different APOE. APOE is supposed to be like your butcher. It's the guy that carries the fat around. So why the heck would that have anything to do with Alzheimer's? And in fact, as you know, there are very few changes between a chimp and a human, genetically speaking. So in fact, what happened? How did we become humans? God came down, obviously, touched the, the chimp with DNA, and there was a finite number. In fact, the, the, the chimp and human genomes are so similar that my genome, as I explained to my wife, who's an integrative physician, I said, do you know that my, my genome as a whole is actually more similar to a male chimp's than it is to yours? And she said, well, duh. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, you like ESPN, the chimp likes ESPN, you like Larry Curley and Moe, the chimp likes Larry Curly and Moe. Okay. So, in fact, there aren't that many differences. And if you look at the things that are changed, guess what? Surprisingly, a lot of the things that changed had to do with a pro-inflammatory state. They were pro-inflammatory. And interestingly, Tuck Finch from USC, a professor down at USC, said, I think this is because what happened? What did it take to go from a chimp to a human? We had to come down out of the trees. We had to walk along the savanna. We are puncturing our feet. We're getting all sorts of organisms. We're eating meat. We're now getting all these microorganisms. We're not cooking our meat, right? And in fact, it makes a lot of sense. And so what happens when you get APOE4, it is a pro inflammatory molecule, even though it carries the fat around. Okay, there we go. Okay, so if you look at this molecule, it actually is different. So here, APOE4, uh, again, about 75 million Americans have that, is slightly different, one residue from APOE3, and yet the shape is very different. So APOE4, as Dr. Maley and his colleagues showed a number of years ago, actually looks like columns on a house, whereas APOE3 looks like a nutcracker. Very different. And it's because this right here, this arginine 61 right here, which interacts with the glutamate on the left, but now it interacts with the cysteine-112 on the right there. So it's two different ways. It literally can interact, and it gives you a different outcome. They're quite different. So interestingly, for 96% of our hominid evolution, we've all been APOE 4.4. That's all there's been. It's only been in the last 4% of our evolution as hominids that showed up APOE 3, which is now the common one. So I checked myself. I'm a 3.3. It's, that's like vanilla. That's what many of us are. And then APOE2, uh, just uh, 80,000 years ago. So in fact, for most of, of hominid evolution, we have all been the very thing that predisposes to Alzheimer's disease. But of course, 
we were dying young or we were doing the right things. We didn't have all the exposures we have, et cetera. So to make a very long story very short, what we found is a very new mechanism. We published this a few years ago. What it showed was, yes, APOE binds receptors. That had been known before. But what hadn't been appreciated is when it binds, it goes into the nucleus it interacts with a molecule called RELA, which is related to inflammation, interestingly, and it binds to 1,700 different places on the DNA that are promoters of genes. So not only is this guy your butcher carrying around the fat, he's also your senator setting the laws of the land, literally changing the programming in your cell. And if you ask, well, what are those 1,700 genes, and you group them, you could not tell a better story for Alzheimer's disease. You can see inflammation, cell death, microtubule disassembly, glucose handling, all these things that we associate with Alzheimer's are the genes. And by the way, uh, so SIRT1, which is the thing that people take resveratrol for, uh, the thing that's in the red wine, that one, which is known to be anti-Alzheimer's, is also one of the promoters bound by the APOE4 and shut down. So the very thing that is helping with your longevity and anti-Alzheimer's is actually shut down by the APOE4. So what that means, again, is that if you have APOE4, you are living in a more REL-A dominant, in other words, a more pro-inflammatory system. That's what helped us to survive in the savanna five to seven million years ago. Now, recently, when we had the mutation and we now have APOE3, this is a SIRT1 dominant system. It's a different system. REL-A and SIRT1 are actually mutually inhibitory. So now you are putting your resources not so much into protection and defense. You are putting your resources more into recycling and longevity. So no surprise, if you are APOE4 positive, you can say, well, that's negative because you now have more cardiovascular disease, more dementia. Yeah, but actually, you are better at fighting infections. If you live as a Chimane India down in the wilds of Bolivia, you're going to survive longer and do better because of the parasites there if you're APOE4 positive. If you live, if you're a Ghana tribe member, you're going to survive better if you're an APOE4. But if you're living in the U.S., you actually have a little bit longer lifespan on average if you're APOE3. So of course, we then want to say, great, we can look at this early on, we can get you on the appropriate program so that you don't have those problems in the future. So what do we do then? Just to finish up over the next few minutes here, we use an algorithm that we developed to subtype people. And then what we want to do very simply is to address the things that are causing the decline or the risk for decline in each person. Diet, exercise, sleep, stress. 25 years ago when we were early on in this research, my wife, who's a family practice doctor and now integrative physician, told me, you know, whatever you guys find in the lab, it's going to have something to do with the basics, what you eat, how you sleep, exercise. I said, no, no, no. We're, we're, I was very reductionistic back then. We're going to find one molecule, one little fold of one molecule. We're going to get a drug, and it's going to be right there, and boom, Alzheimer's done. So, of course, I should have listened to my wife 25 years ago. She was absolutely right. These are the things that all contribute. It's no longer something like you take one thing and you whack it with a rocket and kill it. It's now saying, no, this is many different pieces. It's like changing the corporate culture in your company. You want to not change one janitor. You want to now change a lot of critical positions and do it in the right way to get this to function correctly. That's exactly what we see. So 
We have to get people on the appropriate diet, which is a plant-rich ketogenic diet. We target for one to four millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is an important ketone. We get people to do cardio and strength training. We want to rule out sleep apnea. How many people have ever checked their oxygen saturation at night? Yeah, what we're finding is the two things that actually have the biggest immediate impact on people's cognition is to find out that they're that their, uh, that their oxygenation at night is not good and to fix that. And then secondly, to make sure that they don't have periodontitis or other uh, pro- uh, oral problems that can contribute. So these are quick fixes and things that turn out to be very important. Oral health is turning out to be very important. This is, you know, the, this is the whole tooth and nothing but the tooth. So, right? And so... This is whether it's mercury, whether it's periodontitis, the organisms in your mouth are being found repeatedly in your brain. And you may know about the company here in, in San Francisco, Cortizyme, um, that is actually developing treatment for specifically for P. gingivalis, which is one of the things that's in periodontitis and in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's disease. Okay, so these are all critical Brain training, also invented here, Professor Mike Mersnick from UCSF, healing the gut, probiotics and prebiotics, and then probiotics, now oral probiotics, also important. Your immune system turns out to be huge because your immune system is trying to deal with these pathogens, which unfortunately are breaching your barriers, breaching the immune system, and actually getting into your brain. So what do you do? You spray these things with amyloid. The amyloid is an antimicrobial. It literally, it's a little bit like thinking about this as a scorched earth retreat. If you remember when, you know, when the Nazis were headed for Stalingrad, and they basically this, they wanted to pull everything back and destroy everything. So this is what's happening in your brain. You are having a scorched earth retreat. So we want to look to see what are you retreating from, and we want to treat all of those things. And that includes detox, methylation, all these things. Pathogens, herpes simplex, P. gingival, etc. Target identified toxins, and these are, they can be organic, they can be biotoxins, they can be metallotoxins. Those are the big three. We want to optimize your vascular system. You, uh, there's something called EWOT, which is exercise with oxygen training. Has anyone heard about this before? Yeah, great. So yeah, so literally, you know, you exercise, you do oxygen, and for people who have vascular disease, it really helps. So again, we want to this is this is you know my argument to the doctors. We've trained over fifteen hundred physicians in ten different countries and all over the U.S. now. And I always say to them, when someone comes to see you with cognitive decline, one of two things is going to happen: either you're going to make them better, or they're going to die. So this is critical. You got to pull out all the stops to make sure that you do everything possible. And for some people, they do well with stem cells. And of course, there are stem cell trials ongoing. For prevention, you don't have to do quite that much. But what you want to do is achieve insulin sensitivity, get an optimal diet exercise, sleep, stress. We want to do resolving inflammation, removing the cause, whatever that happens to be, whether it's leaky gut, whether it's periodontitis, whether it's wounds, whether it's other problems. And we want to support your immunity because that's critical. We want to optimize your nutrients. We want to lower your homocysteine, get your B12 appropriate, your hormones, your trophic factors, brain training. Anyone heard of whole coffee fruit extract? It increases your brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is what exercise also does. Very helpful. We want to identify and remove the toxins that are contributing to this. We want to optimize your vascular health. So those are the critical pieces. And, of course, heal your gut. There's been so much now about gut microbiome. Um, and you want to then use probiotics and prebiotics. So the 21st century vaccine is a very different form of vaccine, as they call it, an, an injection, not an injection. We want larger data sets. We want to look to see 
who is at risk. We want to know what your genome looks like, what your microbiome looks like, what your metabolome looks like, what your exposome looks like. We want to use computer-based algorithms, which we've written for subtyping and optimizing the program. We want to use, a, the most importantly, a programmatic, not a monotherapeutic approach. And again, I believe the drugs are going to be very helpful, but they need to be used on the backbone of the, of the entire program. And there are N of 1. So we, you know, each person is different. This idea that we're going to tell ahead of time, we're going to give everybody this, the same thing. Really? Is that the way to do it? Maybe people are different. And in fact, each of us responds differently to these various things. So we have what we call the PRPs, which are patient researcher partnerships, and we work with one-on-one with people to look at, okay, what, how can we optimize things for you? And then we need to have global programs. Just as we had global vaccines, we need to have global problems to eradicate Alzheimer's disease and ultimately other complex chronic illnesses as well. Well, that's the future. So we need to train a new kind of doctor. As you can see, the, you know, the, the 20th century doctors, very good. We knew about DNA, RNA, all that sort of stuff, but we tended to focus, oh, this is in your brain. This is not below. This is not your system. This is your brain. But systems medicine is changing all that. Of course, the traditional Chinese physicians, they were great with the whole body. Right, But they didn't know about DNA or RNA or computer-based algorithms. So we now need to train a new kind of doctor, right, Some, Yeah, who actually gets both of these and who actually can put these together for best outcomes. So just to finish then, Alzheimer's should be a rare disease. This is actually a result of a protective response. And literally getting to people early with prevention and early reversal, we could now make this a rare disease. So when people come in very, very late stages, I tell them, look, bring in all your children. Let's end it with this generation. That's the very least we should be able to do. There are six subtypes of Alzheimer's, and we didn't go into these, but they're basically inflammatory, atrophic, glycotoxic. Uh, 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 let's see, then toxic, which is type 3. Uh, type 4 is vascular, and type 5 is traumatic. So these are the various things that can, that can happen. Cognitive decline in, in early Alzheimer's and its uh, forerunners, uh, reversible, as I've shown you a couple of examples. We see it again and again and again. Um, this sort of approach should be applicable to other diseases as well, and we should be able to reduce the global burden of dementia. And as Professor Mersnick says, yes, making people think better, even the ones who feel that they're normal, they can do better, that will lower the number of accidents we have on the highways, so forth and so on fewer air disasters, et cetera, et cetera. So in fact, there's a tremendous amount that can be done. And I think we've got to think more along the lines of where 21st century medicine is going. So thanks once again to Adria for the wonderful invitation. And thanks everyone for coming tonight. Dr. Bredesen, that was absolutely incredible and empowering. Thank you. And I agree, Nobel Prize. I think we'd all agree on that one, right? Thank you. You're- yeah, if, my, my feeling is you know, if, we, if we can reduce the global burden of venture so you can actually see it and measure it, that'll be better than any prize. So it would be great to see a, a really big reduction in the dementia. And, and that's, this is the way things should be headed. You're changing the world. And by touching each person, you're changing families and generations and their entire community. And that is greatly what's lacking in our society today. So thank you personally. Yeah, thanks very much again for the invitation. We have a zillion questions. Many of them are going around on payment because obviously people are here because they're interested. Yes. Does insurance pay for this? What is the most economical way somebody can begin to get analyzed and then perhaps treated? 
Yeah, this is a great question, and it comes up all the time. And, and, and no question, this is an issue, because on the one hand, if you end up in a nursing home, you're talking about somewhere between $80,000 and $140,000 per year. So this is about a hundredth of that. But you're right, it often is not. Now some, some places will cover it, and we're now interacting with groups that are, that are looking at how can we cover this. And in fact, one of the groups we're interacting with is uh, literally I was, on the, the, uh, I was on the phone with one of the senators from South Carolina a week ago. So we are trying to see how can we get this covered in the long run, because it will, it'll save lives and it will also save a lot of money out of pocket. But you're right. The initial outlay is something that typically the test costs somewhere in you know, 800 to $1,200 for all the different tests, because unfortunately you need to know that information. Now you can do a fair amount blindly. You can say, well, look, I'm going to try to do this. And, and one model which is not a bad idea, is if everyone were to just do the basics, okay, certain percentage of people will be fine. The ones that fall through the cracks there that continue and now really do have some cognitive decline, now they need to do more testing. So we've set up something called pre-code, which is a little bit like recode, but it's for prevention, which will be easier to do, will be less expensive, and will, and will allow people to do fewer things. But you're absolutely right. We are trying to get more and more people to to uh, fund this and, and to basically to, to uh, make it so it's reimbursable. We are getting, some people are getting reimbursed. So you can check with your healthcare system, certainly for some of them. Most of them will allow you to do things like homocysteine and HSCRP, some basic things like that. Sometimes some of the toxins, maybe not all of them. So at least you can begin there. And as you said, there's a list in the book, so you can actually see, you know, what. And the other thing that is important is it's not just about checking them. You don't want to be on the lower end. So this is another thing where we as doctors have done it wrong. We've always said to people, if you're within two standard deviations of the mean, we're going to define that as within normal limits. That has absolutely nothing to do with what's optimal for your physiology. So I always tell the patients, look, we're now going to treat you like a competitive athlete. We don't want you to have a homocysteine of 12. That's normal, but it's not optimal. And that's well-proven, published. Same, same thing with you know, vitamin D, same idea. Um, B12, normal. You can have a normal B12 of 300. That's not good for you. It's not optimal. So we want to get you to the optimal numbers, not just at the lower limits of normal. So let me see if I understand this. Do you currently have a step-down plan where somebody can have initial testing, and based on the initial testing, they then know if they need to go to the, the deeper testing? Yes. So you can literally you can go on, um, our, you can go on a website, um, drbredison.com, and you can get the, some of the basic testing, yes. And then the pre-code part is not out yet, but that's coming. All right. And a tremendous, I mean, all of this, I would imagine, plus much of it is at least in your book. Yes. The testing, okay. Yes, and also the optimal values for these various things. Where would somebody have to go to get the test? Do they go to your office? You can actually, uh, so I'm mainly a researcher, um, so I don't see many patients, but, um, but we've trained, let's say, 1,500 doctors. So you can literally go on the Internet, and they'll do direct-to-consumer testing so that you can get, you can either go to a local place and have your blood drawn, and this will tell you what to get, um, or you can actually have someone come to your place, your place of employment or your home, uh, mobile phlebotomy, uh, to get that done. You can do who, it either way. Who gives the prescription for it? So it's actually done at the other end. So in other words, the lab, the place doing the lab testing actually has a doctor there looking over the tests. And those labs so are you in your book? Yes. Ah, lovely. And you can get it, through, as I say, you can get it direct to consumer through the website. Okay. 
how much red wine can somebody drink a day and be safe? Yeah, yeah. This is a great question. So from the standpoint of resveratrol, it really doesn't help. There's not enough in there to do, really to do anything. But how, how much wine is, is always a good question because there's no question. Alcohol affects your memory. So what I usually recommend is if you are symptomatic already, you want to keep it down to, you know, one glass per day, maybe three or four times a week. Uh, because otherwise it's going to affect your memory. And you want to make sure that your thiamine is good, especially if you, because you've run out of thiamine fairly quickly. Uh, and, of course, alcohol is helps you to reduce your thiamine, unfortunately. So you want to do minimal. If you're in prevention, so, yeah, you have a glass or a glass and a half, you know, four times a week is not going to kill you. But you don't want to go to the point where it's actually impacting your cognition for obvious reasons. So you referenced resveratrol in the red wine, and yes. obviously there's not enough there. Is there right. a supplement quantity that you would suggest? Sure. And people have been very negative, again, about supplements. So there's been a whole article written about, you know, supplements are worthless. In fact, one of the things that was said is there's no supplement that's a cure for Alzheimer's. Of course not. That's like saying there's no instrument that makes the orchestra. Duh. So the point here is not, it's like what we're doing right now in the pharmaceutical companies, we're still looking for that one instrument that makes the orchestra. We're going to keep looking until we find it. You know, we looked here, we looked there, but no one instrument makes the orchestra. Yes, that's true. So we want to be able to change. So if you're now looking at someone who has cognitive decline, you're not checking their insulin sensitivity, you're really not giving them the best treatment. If you're not checking their methylation, their homocysteine, you're not giving the best treatment. And you just go on and on and on like that. So supplements can be very helpful. Um, magnesium 3 and 8 developed at MIT, very nice, uh, improves the magnesium in your brain. It's been published. It does enhance cognition, and many people with Alzheimer's are low. So if you're low, that's one that's going to be helpful. Berberine, another one. You can just go on and on and on. Again, these things are helping you to optimize your biochemistry. So you needn't take them blindly. That's not the idea. Of course, they're not perfect. Of course, they're not going to be a cure. But as part of an overall program to optimize your neurochemistry so that you have the best cognition, they're very helpful. Is there a chapter on this in your book as well? There is, yes. Yahoo. Yeah, is. Okay. So, and, and yeah, ris resveratrol is nice. Um, as we mentioned, resveratrol actually helps in that balance that I showed. Um, so it's actually uh, quite helpful. I was actually surprised. When resveratrol first came out, I thought, nah, this is not going to have any impact on these pathways. It turns out it does. So we include it. And nicotinamide riboside, and you can uh, go right down the list there. And there, all these are in the book. How about sleep and circadian rhythms? Yeah. Very good point. Sleep is, I think, the most underappreciated thing. And as someone who is an intern and who would go three and four days in a row with no sleep, I'm sure that really damaged my brain. It was horrible. I would fall asleep, you know, talking to anybody. I would fall asleep in the middle of evaluating patients and things. This is really bad for your brain. And beyond just missing sleep. So, yes, if you're not getting eight hours of good sleep at night and waking up really feeling refreshed and not getting sleepy during the day, please get Get checked out because it means something's wrong. And one of the most common, as I just mentioned earlier, one of the most common contributors to not only cognitive decline, but also to macular degeneration, because we're now taking this approach and we're now altering it for all these other neurodegenerative diseases. And the next one is macular degeneration. Now, we only have the first two people, but they're doing absolutely great. And guess what? One of the common contributors, both cognitive decline and macular degeneration, is desaturation of oxygen 
at night. So you want to know where you stand. We should all be between 96 and 98 percent saturation of oxygen at night while we are sleeping. And if you're dropping down into the 80s and the one of the people that we saw, it was going down to 71% at night. I mean, that's just way, way too low. That's something that can be addressed. How do people test that at home without a sleep study in in the hospital? So you can actually get an oximeter. Stick it on your finger, and you can actually test it at home. Another thing I would recommend, there's something, and again, I don't have anything to do with any of these, but um, Abbott has come out, and you've probably seen this on television, um, something called Freestyle Libra. It's a fantastic thing. What it does is it gives you two weeks of continuous glucose monitoring. You stick it, it's a patch you stick on your arm, and it samples the interstitial fluid, which is very close to what's in your blood, so that you get a continuous monitoring for two weeks, and you can see what's spiking my glucose, and you can also see is there something that's making me hypoglycemic when I sleep at night, both of which are bad for you. And so these things are really helpful to have, really helpful to know. And the thing, the, the thing from Abbott is like 85 bucks for That's two weeks. Abbott Laboratories. Abbott Laboratories, yeah. All right. Uh, what about EBV and hypothyroid? Are those related here? Yeah, very good point. So if you look at the various viruses that are associated with cognitive decline, they are herpes family viruses. They are the chronic viruses that hang around your system for years. The big ones are herpes simplex type 1, HHV6A, which is in your brain, and um, HSV2 to a lesser extent. But also, as you mentioned, EBV, CMV, these are all possibilities as well. So we want to know is this, because many of them are, many of us are carrying these things around, but if we're having recurrent outbreaks, that's important. And as an example, there was a nice study done a couple of years ago in Taiwan where they looked at people, this was thousands and thousands of people, and took people who had outbreaks of herpes as they were growing up, and then they looked at those who treated the outbreaks and those who didn't treat the outbreaks. And these are lip herpes, okay, oral. And what they had was um, the ones who treated them had a 60% lower risk for dementia. So it was strikingly different. So when we find people who have especially any evidence of recent outbreaks or of, uh, or of recurrent outbreaks, we do tend to treat them. The, the treatment is pretty benign. We also, as you can imagine, want to increase that immune support. If your immune system is not doing well, especially your cellular immune system, your T-cell function, and you can measure that as well, um, then in fact you want to be on support for your immune system because you're going to have more. Literally, you know, Alzheimer's is your barriers have failed. Your immune system has failed to keep these various insults at bay. Raised vitamin D is good for immunity. And I want to make a comment on the uh, herpes outbreak. Yeah. I only learned this a few months ago. An ice cube, when you start to feel that tingling, is astonishing. Right? So you don't have to be taking the drugs that deal with your liver. All right. I think food. Food was the yes. last question. Food. So this is, again, huge. Something that in medical school we were taught has almost no effect on disease, and it turned out to be completely wrong. And so, you know, when I was trained back in the 70s at Duke, we had, there was one, Duke University Medical Center offered one, it was a wonderful medical school, but it offered one course on nutrition, and that was optional. You didn't have to take it. And what I learned in that course is that vitamin C is thermolabile. So if you heat it up, it will, that's the only thing I learned in that course. There is so much, I mean, this is a huge, field unto itself. 
And there is uh, American College of Nutrition has a wonderful meeting coming up. I encourage people. There's just so much now. Now, not surprisingly, on the Internet, you can find stuff that's fake and stuff that's real. So you have to be careful. But the what's coming out of this, you've probably heard of the Mediterranean diet. You've probably heard of the MIND diet. What we use, we call KetoFlex 12-3. It's just about getting your biochemistry optimized. So in general... Most of us, not all of us, but most of us do well with a plant-rich, and we call it keto-flex because if you want to be a vegetarian, fine. If you want to have some meat, fine. But you want to have the right things. You want to have fish. You want to have wild-caught fish. You don't want to have stuff that's in the farm. It's got all these toxins in it. You don't want to have high-mercury fish. What are those? Those are the guys with the big mouths and the long lives. So you don't want swordfish. You don't want sharks. Right? You don't want those sorts of things. Tuna fish. No. You want to have the good stuff, which is the smash fish, salmon, mackerel, anchovies, sardines, and herring. Those are the little guys. So they don't have the high mercury in them. They have the great omega-3 uh, to omega-6 ratios. That's what you want. You want to improve your omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. Most of us are living in a pro-inflammatory state because of all the exposures we have, because of what we eat, because we have leaky gut, you know, on and on and on, um, because we eat lots of bread and all this sort of stuff that the, the sodas and all these things that actually damage our GI system. So these it turns out diet really important. So the, and I described it in the book. It is we call it KetoFlex twelve three. How many people do any fasting at all? So actually, it's helpful. Now, not if you're really thin, you've got to be careful. But for most of us, in fact, having some fasting is quite good for us. It's the way we evolved. And in fact, it lowers your blood pressure. It does better for your cognition. It improves your ketosis. It increases your BDNF. And just go right down the list. So many good things that come from that. So we encourage people to do anywhere from 12 to 16 hours of fasting at night. When you finish your dinner, you just don't want to eat till midnight and then start eating at 3 a.m. That doesn't work well. You want to give yourself time. If you finish at 7, then don't start before 7. If you're APOE4 positive, you want to wait two more hours because you actually are better at absorbing fats. So it turns out diet is incredibly powerful. Exercise, powerful. Sleep, powerful. Uh, reducing your stress. Stress is incredible. As Robert Sapolsky, we have the world expert right here at Stanford as a professor, uh, and uh, as Robert has pointed out, uh, stress damages your brain. So all of these things are critical in our cognition. What are the best ways somebody can release mercury if they're doing yeah. it from home. Great question. So mercury turns out to be a real problem. I had a guy I just talked to actually night before last, guy who got very uh, successful in business. He then developed early Alzheimer's, PET scan proven. They told him, you know, you're not that bad yet. Come back in a year, which is kind of a typical thing to say. And so he called me up a couple of years ago and I said, you know, you sounds like you have type three, which is toxic. We got to find out what toxins you're exposed to. And he said, no, no, I'm, I'm a very successful businessman. I live, live a very healthy life. Well, it turned out what had happened. He had his mercury, if you had, go to the 95th percentile, his was seven times that. So he had one of the highest mercury readings the labs had ever seen. And he had both inorganic mercury and organic. You get the inorganic, of course, from your dental amalgams, and you get the organic from the seafood. He had both. And he had a very poor ability to excrete. So he had the perfect storm. He's now brought his mercury down from way high down to a normal level. It took a year or so, 
while his cognition has improved. Uh, and so the first thing to do is you want to deal with someone who knows how to reduce mercury. Um, and I would say there are two things to think about there. One is there's a good group called Quicksilver. You can go on the internet and look at Quicksilver, started by Chris Shade, um, who is a PhD, excellent studied mercury toxicity, developed new approaches to look at it, to evaluate it, to measure it, and to treat it. And they have something called Cube, which basically increases something called NERF2, which is a molecular pathway for removing toxins. So and it does it in a cyclic way so that you literally move these and then relax and then remove them and relax. If you do it too fast, that's not good. If you do it not at all, that's not good either. You should also have a biological dentist take out your amalgams, not all at once, but one or two at a time every few months until you don't have any left, because that will contribute to your inorganic mercury. And getting rid of those, both of those, is actually a good thing. Okay. Thanks again. Dr. Bredesen, that was absolutely incredible. You've created an incredible, empowered audience here. I am Adria Breyer, a member of the club's Health and Medicine member-led forum and chair of today's program. We thank Dr. Bredesen for that amazing information today. We thank our audiences here as well as those listening to the recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating more than 116 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>